This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. Now that spooky season is in the past and the calendar is turned over to November, that means it's time to keep the tension raised high, but to add a different kind of whodunit to the mix. We're looking for crooked cops, gumshoe detectives, mysterious dames and heavies with their own code of conduct. It's November time. Last year, Rachel and I made recommendations for different genres back on episode 173, November. We're back again, so light up a Viceroy, pour yourself a highball of Seagram's whiskey, and let the light hit your eyes at just the right angle. Today, we're using the Criterion Channel's latest November collection, focusing on films produced by 20th Century Fox. We have picked out three films to talk about. They are 1945's Fallen Angel, directed by Otto Preminger, 1948's Call Northside 777, directed by Henry Hathaway, and 1950's Panic in the Streets, directed by Aliyah Kazan. Returning to the show is Alicia Mogul, who was last heard on episode 197, David Cronenberg and Body Horror. Welcome back, Alicia. How are you doing today? I am doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. I co- of course, we're, we're very excited. And it's, you know, a little behind the scenes sort of stuff here. Uh, when Rachel and I first got introduced to you, one of the things that you had said that you loved is noir movies. And so Rachel and I instinctively was like, okay, so that means in November, we got to make sure Alicia comes back on the show for this. Uh, and so we're very happy that uh, this is now months in the planning and, and you're able to make it. I am. I kind of. I feel like I kind of insisted. I, I forced you guys to invite me on that episode. Um, but I'm so grateful. I, I. I love noir. It's. It's. It's so good. Raymond Chandler is one of my all-time favorite uh, writers. Like my top three. And I just. I. I want to be a femme fatale. I just want to. I want to be Jean Turney. <laughs> I know that she's not in any of the movies we're discussing today, but I just. I want to be her. That's totally fine. I love that. Uh, now, a year ago, Rachel, you worked on Bill Antonio's monthly article, Criterion Shelf, where he had, uh, where there was a different crop of Fox Noirs that you reviewed, and you had written about Night in the City in Black Widow. Uh, I don't know if you remember doing this at all or not, but uh, how did that crop of Fox Noirs compare to this year's selection? So, I don't know if I can answer that. Um, I remember Night in the City quite well. I don't remember Black Widow that well for some reason. Um but yeah, I mean, they were, I don't know if they, like Criterion divided it in any sort of theme across the two years. It just seems like they're just like uh, noir films that came out by Fox. So, and yeah, I, I don't know if there was a really big difference, but I enjoyed, I would say I enjoyed both of them last year. I do remember liking Black Widow. I just don't remember it very well for some reason. <laughs> um, and then of the three that we watched, I really liked two and one of them I was not a huge fan of, so... Interesting. Um, so that's, two, I like two on each side. And yeah, and then last year I, I only read, or read, I only watched, um, I only watched those two though. Bill, Bill watched all of them because he always watches. Well, that's because Bill has single. no life. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like I was shocked when I found, when he told me he literally will watch every, even if somebody signs up for it, he'll still watch it. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's impressive. Cause there's a lot every month. There's a lot yes. of movies. Uh, now maybe Alicia, you'll be able to sort of help me with this. I tried very hard to find some sort of a ethos or mission statement of what makes a Fox noir different than the others, other than the fact that they were the ones that put the money behind it to produce this, because, you know, you have other studios like Columbia, MGM, United Artists, 
All these other big studios at the time, uh, and of course, many of the, the smaller studios as well, and a lot of them were producing noir movies. They were fairly cheap, easy to produce. Uh, you know, there was a, a, a different paperback coming out every week at the drug stores that resolved revolved around some sort of a, a murder case or something like that, a police story, a, a criminal story that could be made into our noir movie. But I wasn't able to find any sort of definition of what was specifically a Fox noir compared to other studios. In watching them, I the only sort of in regard to these three discernible differences I found is it was it seemed to less be about of uh, it was not about a detective for hire case that a lot of the most popular noirs really are about. Do you have any sort of idea of what makes a Fox Noir its own unique thing? Or is it just, it just is who produced it? I think uh, the, so to even step back a little, um, the idea of a Noir in and of itself is very difficult to define. Like scholars have been going at it for a very long time. Um, some people think it's, it's a genre. Other people think it's kind of like a vibe. Um, and you know, you don't even need to have like a detective at the core. You can have like a drifter or something. Um, and I, I really do think ultimately it, a lot of it has to do with, um, like the director and the writer. Um, cause I feel like at this point, most of, most studios would have just gone to just produce any kind of a noir just cause they were so popular. People loved them. So maybe, um, whoever had like it, it, it would depend on which studio had which actor and was able to get which director. Um, and I feel like if you had Preminger, you were, you were lucky and cause he's ah oh, so good. Um, so yeah, I feel like, yeah, I don't know. That, that's a very tough question. Before we uh, get into right. it, I just want to say, I, Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, I'm like genuinely disappointed that none of you guys were familiar with Colin North, North side <laughs> 777. It, it I, I, I but also at the same time, I'm I'm like a geek. I went um, through a Jim James Stewart phase, um, so I basically watched everything he did. So that's kind of why I'm familiar with it. But also, it's just so good. And yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it later. The very day I hit the town of Walton, I walked right into a smoldering drama. Perhaps if I had moved on, it wouldn't have ended as it did, and things would have gone differently for a lot of people. June Mills, for instance would have been spared ridicule she didn't deserve any more than she deserved what she got from listening to me. And all I meant was, there's nothing in it for you chasing around like this. You ought to go home. No. Why do you waste your money on a guy like me? I'm not wasting my money. It's yours as well. I don't care what you do with it. Burn it up, tear it, do anything you want with it. But let's get started and talk about the first one, which is Fallen Angel. So as uh, we mentioned earlier, it was directed by Otto Preminger, who directed the classic Laura, but he's also done stuff like Anatomy of a Murder, Stalag 17, Carmen mm-hmm. Jones, and a whole bunch of other classics. He is He's one of the all-time great directors. And this movie uh, is about a slick con man who arrives in a small town looking to make some money, but soon gets more than he bargained for. And it stars Alicia Fay, Dana Andrews, and Linda Darnell, among others, including uh, a nice little supporting performance from John Carradine, who pops up in a couple scenes as well. This was, as I've said, my first time watching all of these, so I'd never seen it before. And uh, unfortunately, of the three, it was probably the one I liked the least. And as you were saying, Alicia, noir is such a debated genre about what it is and isn't. 
And to me, Fallen Angel felt the least noir-like out of all of them. It seemed uh, more mundane. It seemed more of a love mystery than an actual noir. But, you know, that's maybe the beauty of noir is that it can sort of fit multiple uh, uh, descriptions. Uh, So... Tell tell me why I'm wrong, Alicia. Why why is this a great movie? I I feel like I do kind of disagree. Where I feel like of the three, this is the more noiry, like more aesthetically noir, just because of the way Prevenger kind of wields the camera. It oh, one of my favorite uh, little frames is um, near the end where Dana Andrews and I, f- I forget uh, who his wife in that scene. Um, is she June. They're they're in that hotel room and his camera looks out at the window and we just see the hot in hotel and then it's nighttime and then it becomes daytime and then the hot part goes away because we see San Francisco reflected in the window. That oh, it was such a good bit. Did you guys like that part? I did actually. I really enjoyed yes. that. Like I was watching. I think I actually rewound that part because I think I, to be fair, I think I I kind of lost my attention at one point. I went, that was a really nice shot, and then I had to go back and look at it again. <laughs> um, yeah, it was very very striking. It, it um, Preminger is kind of like the shadows, and it kind of reminded me of um, I, I I can't pronounce his name. Um, Siod Siod Max Siod Mac S I O D M A K, um, the guy who's known for you know killers and stuff. Uh, because he's got really amazing shadows that are velvety and, and deep, and um, Fallen Angels really has those um, slick, heavy shadows, and obviously the light and the dark um, portrayed by the, t- the two women. It just kind of really complements the shadow work, and the light work really complements the moral um, murkiness going on in the movie, I think. Yeah, I would say probably... This movie and and Panic in the Streets, which was Eli Kazan, the two of them had the most director influence on the look of the film, where I could tell that this movie was directed by someone who really understood what the camera had to do and, and how to light a scene and all that stuff we expect the greatest directors to know how to do. Because if you go through Preminger's filmography, you obviously know the amount of heavy hitters that he's he's created. And I think this was no exception of the way he he treated the story with the respect that he believed it deserved. And it really showed through, even if I personally felt that the plot wasn't totally up to par with some of his other films. Oh, absolutely. Totally agree with that. Yeah, I'd agree with that, too. I think, Alicia, what you said about um, the aesthetic of the film. I think that's absolutely spot on. Like I completely agree. There's, there's a real kind of the classic, what we think of what noirs should look like, even though, I mean, all the films back then were black and white, but there is, you know, a very distinct feel to what a film noir is. And I think this one has it. I agree though. Um, with Dakota, I, I would probably have to say I actively dislike this movie. Um, not that like of the three, it's the one that I, I like the least, but I think I actually just don't like it. Generally speaking. Um, yeah, I, I didn't really like the plot. I thought it was very, I don't even know what the word is. I just thought it was very, like, not boring. I wouldn't call it boring. But um, one, I thought, I mean, Dane Andrews, I think, does a really good job because I absolutely hated um, Eric Stanton as a character. He was a real mm-hmm. prick. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I like the, I did like the the kind of the light and the dark between the two women, as you said, that Alicia. I thought that that was mm-hmm. kind of cool. Something I feel like, 
um, should we should we describe the plot really briefly for the movie? Yeah, go ahead. Um, okay, so what the movie's about is this um, drifter guy coming into a town, um, helping a psychic for some reason with this publicity because he um, Dana Andrews's character used to have a publicity firm, um, and as he's doing the publicity for the psychic, he falls head like madly like. In the, in the way that a lot, a lot of guys do in noirs, he falls very horny, hornily in love with, um, <laughs> I think, is it Linda Darnell's character? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Stella. Linda Darnell's Stella, yes. Um, who is the quintessential femme fatale, dark hair, bold lip, um, the sassy talk. Um, he falls in uh, love with her. Um, mostly, I think he just wants to have sex with her. Um, and then... She's like, no, I want, I need, I need somebody with money. So he tries to scrounge up the money for her, and he does that by marrying this angelic blonde um, character named June. Um, and eventually, Linda Darnell's character kind of gets annoyed with how long it's taking him to get the money. So she kind of, you know, goes on a bunch of dates. Um, and uh, can I spoil it? Should I spoil it? Spoil it. It's from nineteen forty-five <laughs> or something like that. Like, whatever. She she gets honestly an hour into the movie she gets killed and that's kind of when the mystery starts um with like 30 minutes left um she the femme fatale gets murdered and we're trying to figure out who 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 did it um and i think what the story kind of is doing in its pacing and it's like weird introduction to dana andrews's character um because i felt as soon as we started watching it was like whoa everything is moving way too fast these two characters linda darnell's character and dana andrews's character they don't know each other at all but they want to get married. It's been like literally 24 hours. And I think the movie is trying to make a comment because um, one of like the the workers at a hotel later on, she's like, everyone's getting married these days. I think they were trying to make a comment on like swift marriages. And the pacing of the film kind of had us feeling uneasy about how quickly everything was moving. Um, and people ending up marrying absolute strangers and then getting a divorce later on because the people they marry are obviously they don't know each other at all. And then you find out about each other and get a divorce. Um, and I think the unease that a lot of people might feel in watching that movie is that kind of a queasiness at just not knowing the people before us. Cause we learn about Eric Stanton's character right at the end when he divulges everything to June about his life. And she's like, I want to know everything about you, but she fell in love with him before she even knew anything about him. And I think that was kind of like a tongue-in-cheek way Preminger kind of maybe talking about that, do you think? That's not, I, I didn't look too deep. I just kind of went, <laughs> like, oh, like, I don't know, a lot of movies back then, especially back then, they used to do the really quick fall-in-love thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe nowadays we, like, kind of expect it to be a bit more thoughtful and, like, a lot more time needs to pass and things like that. But... You know, back then, I also think just in, I mean, we obviously weren't alive back then, but it was like, I actually think that in society, generally speaking, people had very short courtships and then they just got married, you know, because mm-hmm. they didn't date like how we date today. Uh, and so I, I chalked it up to that. I just kind of thought they fall in love real quick because, you know, that's just how things were back then. And and nobody really thought too much about it, whereas we would look at it and think of, and think about like, what's going on here. But it's interesting that you kind of pulled something else from something like that, which I completely just disregarded, which is probably because it says more about me really than you. So it's fine. One of the things I did notice is the amount of times characters in the movie just around 
moving around the main character said, you guys hardly know each other. Um, yeah, I think true, it actually. was June's sister. She was like to her, you hardly know him. And then the cop is like, um, even, I feel like Stella, even earlier, like when um, Nick, Nick, Eric, sorry, he's trying to make out with her. She's like, I hardly know you. Um, that's true. Yeah. That yeah. comes up quite a bit. So I thought maybe... No, no, that is fair. It has to be that something. Is actually completely fair. I did like you brought up um, June's sister Clara. I like that mm. there was kind of a bit of a, like a not. They never really completely explain what happened, but like Clara kind of yeah. alludes to the fact that, you know, it happened to me too. You know, like I I know men like this, and then June goes, "Oh, he's not like that. Like it's not the same thing." I was like, "What happened to Clara?" Even though she was such a background character, but I like that that like there's this little you know, button there that yeah. um, Priminger puts in without explaining it in the slightest either. It's just like, yep, something happened to Clara. And mm-hmm. that's why she's so suspicious of, of, um, of Eric. I hated June. <laughs> she's so dumb. Like, what is she doing? She was. Jeez. Yeah. And so she was so meek throughout the whole thing. And then at one right. point she does have like a bit of a, uh, is it yelly? Not really yelly, but like yeah. she has like a moment, right? Like in the hotel mm-hmm. room. Um, but up until then she was so, so meek. And I just kind of thought, well, they really put that, you know, the very dainty Southern belle kind of look to her and they, they kind of just gave her that quiet voice, very whispery, not whispery, but a very quiet, almost like a baby voice, to be honest, like a very, you know, very soft, soft spoken, um, and then eventually she does kind of break out, but yeah. There was literally that scene, um, he, Eric was like, I, I, I've had it with your quiet whispering. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So annoying. (laughs) Yeah, I I think for me what what really didn't work overall was that this movie seemed to change directions a little too often because it starts out of you know this this drifter in town and then he ends up conning his way into working for this uh, fake seance group and I'm like oh okay that's a little interesting what are they doing here and then all of a sudden those two guys just leave town and are never seen from again and then it's him trying to chase after the Stella character and then when that doesn't go anywhere he just sort of moves on and starts dating the June character and we're like oh okay now we understand he's like trying to get her money and things like that so that's sort of interesting and then it pivots back to the Stella character trying to figure out who killed her and I think for me it was just a little bit too much going on where it, it felt at times the movie didn't know what it wanted to be so it was trying to be a whole lot of things uh, and that sort of just sort of weighed it down for me a little bit. I totally see how you can. I totally get yeah, that. Does that's a valid point? Yeah, I would agree with that too. Actually, I, I think I felt pretty much the sameish things. I don't know. I this movie just wasn't one that really clicked with me. This is the one that I watched. I think this was the first of the three that I ended up watching. And I was kind of like, oh, I hope the other two are better. <laughs> I, was like, I did have that thought. I was like, oh. And they were better. Spoiler alert. It, it kind of gave me um, Postman Always Rings Twice vibes just because... Mm. So you guys... Have you guys seen Postman oh, Always Rings, Rings Twice? Yes. Yeah. And do you know how in the end um, the character goes on this monologue where he literally says the title of the, the movie? Just, just I feel like they put that monologue in just to work the title in. That same thing happens in Fallen Angel where at the end she goes on this... like She does the quotation. And I was like, oh, that's that's hilarious. They just did that to justify the title. <laughs> That's actually true. I didn't think about that. 
Yeah, I, I noticed that too right away. Uh, I think if I would to say something positive about this, obviously the look of this movie is absolutely incredible. But uh, I noticed with with all three of these movies, there's a healthy distrust of uh, policing. And it's so fascinating to look at from this era where the idea of being a police officer is just about the most respectable job that you could have if you're an average person sort of thing. And, and obviously with time uh, and uh, talking to people, we realize that is not the case, but uh, there's an interesting scene when they're trying to figure out who killed Stella. And so they've rounded up a couple of her boyfriends and uh, the first guy that uh, the police officer is talking to is saying like, I know how cops work. And then cops like, oh yeah, and then he does exactly what he assumes, and and that's uh, he gets beaten up by the cop. Um, so I thought it was very interesting that this movie uh, had no issue with uh, criticizing the policing system of we'll beat people up just to get answers, and even if we don't get the answers we want, it doesn't matter because who cares if we beat them up? That is such a societal good thing. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Alicia. Oh no, that was it. I, I, that's a, such a good point, Dakota, that you raised because I didn't realize that. But it, they do, yeah. It seems almost modern in its critique of the corruptness of and, and like the yeah, like the terribleness because the police guy is the bad guy in Fall of Angels. That's so cool. Yeah. See, I was wondering if that's our look on it. Whereas, like, we would look at that and think, "Wow, the cops being a real, you know, whatever kind of thing," but. Um, I feel like, you know, back then when, like you said, like cops had a a very different position, like the way that the public looked at police, um, were very different. And like, and I think it's the idea that even though people knew this stuff was happening, like people knew police would beat the crap out of suspects and this and that, the idea was that was worth it. That was fine because at least they were trying to catch the bad guys kind of thing. And if you didn't do anything wrong, like it's kind of a, a, a naive way of thinking is like, if you didn't do anything wrong, you wouldn't have been in the precinct anyways. Like the cops wouldn't suspect you if you were actually just like a fine person. So as long as you're on the right side of law, then you don't really need to worry about police brutality. But if you're a criminal and whatnot, then that's just a part of justice. Like that is a, a, a part of their justice system is that the police do things like that. And then obviously it gets complicated as, as the decades go on, but like, and I mean, I should say, generally speaking, that's just not good to do anyways. But um, I, I kind of look at it more as like in back then, I think that they just viewed, I don't know if it would have been called like police brutality. It was just something they did. And like, like you said, Dakota, like in the film, they go, oh, I know what cops do. It's like, yeah, that's just kind of how it goes, you know? Yeah, I, I think I think in all three of these movies, though, they do a pretty good job at sort of pushing back at the the mystique of what the judicial system does. Because in this mm-hmm. case, it's used as a, a tool to scare Eric's character, the Dana Andrew ca- character, into talking. In Call Northside 777, I'm not going to reveal too much, but people uh, are more likely to talk to the reporter than they are to the police. And there's a... Uh, general smugness of the judiciary system doesn't get things wrong. And even when they get things wrong, it doesn't matter that they got it wrong. And then in panic in the street, uh, you know, you've got a health inspector working with a police officer and, and once again, it's the same thing where people are more willing to communicate with the health inspector than they are with the police because 
they know what, you know, is a common sentiment today is that the police are not your friend. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like, that's actually a really good option. When we were kind of thinking, or I don't know if we talked about this, but like looking at a through line between the three films, um, that is actually a very common thread, right? Like that that's, you hit the nail on the head there, is that it's a common thread that it's looking at the judicial system and not necessarily the most flattering light. Yeah. And I feel like noirs are just the, I feel like it, this might show up in maybe a few other noirs because the private detective is always like more respected than the actual cops who uh, are seen to not do their jobs quite as well. And I feel like a lot of that lens, that kind of critique of policing is, it works in noirs just because noirs are so much more focused on others, um, just like capital O others. And because we're focused on these more marginalized characters, the fringes of society, we get to see how they view cops. Um, so in we'll see this obviously in um, Panic in the Streets a lot more. And also Northside uh, 777, just because there are more marginalized um, groups in those movies, we get to see from their perspective just how shitty police are and it kind of explodes that um puffy uh, mythos of the you know benevolent police officer coming to just kind of right all the wrongs of like a i don't know a dispute in the house or something with that i think we should maybe move over to call north side 777 unless uh either of you have any final thoughts you want to make sure we get in in this section nope dana andrews is handsome (laughs) (laughs) i like him a lot He's very good in this. Like, I really hated him, genuinely. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's just a good actor. I think yeah, he, he's, he's really good in Laura, and I've seen him in uh, The Best Years of Our Lives as well, where it was a very different performance from him. So he's definitely an actor with a lot of range. Where the sidewalk ends also, he's back together with uh, Gene Tierney, and it's also just a gem. Behind this personal column ad that appeared in the Chicago Times, there lies one of the most unusual but factual dramas ever to come to public attention. Because of its impact and great human interest, this story of a brutal killing and unjust conviction was picked up by Time Magazine and Reader's Digest, bringing it worldwide attention. Okay, well, the next movie on our list is Call Northside 777, uh, directed by Henry Hathaway, and it stars the great Jimmy Stewart, but it also has uh, Richard Conti, Lee J. Cobb, uh, Helen Walker and others, and this is a this is one that also was a very interesting noir watch for me because it didn't feel like a typical noir at the beginning. It's it has a real docudrama feel to it, and you know, uh, Alicia, you did such a good job sort of explaining the plot line to Fallen Angel. So I'm going to sort of turn this over to you if you want to sort of set this movie up a little bit more because I know this is one of your favorites and the one that you you really insisted on that we talk about today. Yay. Yes, um, for sure. So this movie starts in kind of, oh, literally, it starts in, um, it, it, I guess, yeah, it's a, sorry, collecting my thoughts. It is kind of more true crime-ish. Um, it looks at um, Prohibition-era Chicago um, in like 1932-ish, 1933, um, where a lot of uh, police killings are taking place. Um I think one of the stats that they gave in the very beginning of the movie is that there was a police killing for every single day of 
of the year, so 365 for one of the years. Um, so yeah, police policemen are, are getting shot down left, right, and center by, I guess, mob people or just like outlaws. I don't know, like mob terrible guys or just just a lot of terrible is happening. Um, and so the movie focuses on one of those killings um, where a cop is shot down at a speakeasy by two men who are shrouded in shadows like we never really learn who the the people were who killed the cop um but the woman at the speakeasy she kind of identifies two men um and they go to jail they are given a life sentence or i think a 90-year sentence for the killing um and 11 years later is when jimmy stewart comes in and he's a reporter and um his editor basically tells him to kind of follow up on this ad that's appeared in the paper where a woman wants to give anybody who has any information on one of the guys who's in jail. Um, it's her son. Uh, and he, she says that he's been wrongfully, he's been, he's yeah, wrongfully convicted. And so Jimmy Stewart wants to find out, you know, why she's offering money, what, if there is any kind of substance to her claim and the film kind of just follows him at the beginning. He's very hesitant about, looking into the killing because he's like, this guy killed a cop. He's obviously guilty. But the more he digs into it, the more he realizes that, you know, the, the facts that did get him convicted are not set in stone. Um, a lot of people were really angry in early, like in early thirties. Um, and so a lot of weird stuff happened and the more he digs, the more he becomes Kind of like um, his uh, Miss Mr. Smith goes to Wash. It's, it's Mr. Smith, right? Goes to Washington. Something goes to Washington. That character in that movie where he goes and does the filibuster, and he gets very passionate. And yeah, it's just classic Jimmy Stewart being dry and witty and funny and lovely. Sorry, I just want to say that Alicia's social media accounts at the moment are all devoted to Jimmy Stewart right now I'm and in a how mood. she's how she's gonna marry jimmy stewart when she's <laughs> i wasn't kidding i went through a phase he, oh, i love him so much he's such a good guy i mean i know he was a republican but um which is ter- terrible but i feel like he was republicanism then was different from republicanism now um i have to justify I, this bit I'm 100%. I just wanted to make that clear. I know he was a Republican. I would, it's watching this movie was very interesting because I really enjoy a movie where the information, finding the information out is the point of the story. So I sort of, I wrote down in my notes, I was like, this movie is basically like all the president's men in spotlight in the term, in the sense of it's about a reporter digging through evidence to try to figure out what the story actually is and find the real truth. But it sort of plays out like if we actually see the work done in 12 Angry Men and not just the trial. And it has the character of Jimmy Stewart basically doing his Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but as a reporter instead of a politician. And so I I, I figure that those four movies kind of form the basis of what you would expect from Call Northside 777, which is a, a very interesting movie, uh, as you were talking about, because like you've got this documentary-esque feel to it. You've got this like hard journalism edge to it. You've got this noir spin to it. There's a whole lot of different things going on. And unlike Fallen Angel, I think it works a lot better. I think the narration was a little much at times, but that's just sort of a, a product of, I, I'm not a 
big fan of movies with a lot of narration to begin with and and sort of when it pops up at the beginning it's fine it sets the tone but it pops up a few times throughout the movie and i just thought it was a little bit overkill but other than that i thought this was a, a movie that understood what lanes it was trying to tap into and it did a really good job of being the best at what it was trying to do Right. Dakota, I think uh, a lot of your complaints would have been solved if Preminger had directed this movie. It would have been a bit more <laughs> of a murdery. Um, and those like rough edges, edges could have been soothed, like smoothed down because because I do absolutely agree with what you're saying. It, it does get clunky with like the um, archival footage and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. Preminger yeah, could have handled that... it more delicately. <laughs> get Preminger to do to, to shoot the second unit stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and like just like the investigation bit, because um, I feel like this is one of might have been one of the first movies where it, it did teach the public about how lie detectors t- detector tests work and about like how photos are wired across the country um, and just like imaging photo enlarge- enlarging because that would have been cutting edge technology in the time and the film does a good job of like explaining it to the layperson that this is what's going on behind the scenes. That was blowing my mind watching this. Now I was like, how are they? faxing a photo it looks like they're like scanning it i was i was so confused about how that worked it's technology that's now so old and out of date that is completely a foreign concept to us today it reminded me though it reminded me though of like if you watch like a csi episode and how they go okay like enhance enhance zoom in enhance yeah yeah and it's like yeah that you can't do that. Like that's not real. Like that kind of, that's just, that doesn't exist. Like you actually can't do that. Um, Yeah. Like not with like surveillance, especially, you know, CSI from the early two thousands or whatever. So uh, when I'm, when they did that in, in this movie, it made me laugh because it just like, we haven't gone really far from just being like, we're going to zoom in on stuff and do all that kind of nonsense. I just wanted to share a fun fact. I think the Black Dahlia murder would have been the first time in North American history where they wired photos from like one side of the country to the other. And we kind yeah. of also see that take place in this movie. So that would have been you know, exciting stuff for the time. And Jimmy Stewart was you know, part of <laughs> technology at the forefront of technology. Look at him go. Even though he was a Republican. It's fine. Though. Even though. Even though it's okay. it's I, could, I could fix him. I'll fix him. Um, I, I'm with you. The I, I like I like movies that are uh, journalism based. I always found them mm-hmm. really interesting, um, and I like that. Like Jimmy Stewart is the thing with Jimmy Stewart, and I'm not about to slack off for anything, Alicia. Don't worry. Um, I find that he is <laughs> he is very much like he's Jimmy Stewart in every single thing that you watch. Um, I, you could argue that for a lot of actors of that time, though. Like, there's there's not. You know, we yeah. were just talking about Dana Andrews having a lot of range, right? Like, but somebody like, and, and then the funny thing of that is Dana Andrews is probably not an actor that a lot of people, like the the jet, quote unquote general public know about because mm. he's kind of been lost to time a little bit. Whereas somebody like Jimmy Stewart, I would say most people either know his name or if you saw him, you would be like, oh, that guy. Like he he is very recognizable and like same with Humphrey Bogart and and uh, Cary Grant and all them, but they all played the same person all the time, um, which is I assume is a, an exaggerated version of themselves. And I found that in this one though, it fits like I mean in all of his movies it fits really really well. But I always love the way that Jimmy Stewart is able to 
put his Jimmy Stewart like fingerprint onto characters and set a tone in a film. And I think he does that really, really nicely um, in this movie. And yeah. And cause it, cause like there's moments of it being kind of funny. It's a little bit, he's a little quippy. He's a little mm-hmm. quippy guy. Um, and oh, Jimmy Stewart, like the Ryan Reynolds of his day, like, kind of quick, kind of quippy, but not as annoying. Don't worry. Yeah. Alicia. Not as annoying. <laughs> He wasn't like hawking a bunch of random (gasps) buying cell phone providers and shit like that. But, um, but yeah, I, I love Jimmy Stewart in this one and I actually really, really enjoyed this movie and I'm glad that Alicia, you, you picked this one out because you were, as we said at the very beginning, like you were very keen on this one. It, just an aside on Jimmy Stewart, the the twangy, the Jimmy's like the Jimmy Stewart persona kind of was forged after he got back from the war. Um, mm, yeah. He was just like kind of really traumatized by it. So if you see his stuff from like, I think 35, 36 to 40 or 41 ish, um, the romantic stuff he did, the twang of the Southern, like the drawl isn't there as much as it is after the war. And so he kind of like handed up, so, which is when you could say, he became more of like the person we love. Um, I just, I just oh. wanted to add that in there. Um, but I was going to say, I, actually. yeah, no, I think he wanted to do like a play up a bit of like the happiness and his characters just cause he was really, the war really messed him up. Poor guy. I mean, as it did everybody, cause it was, it was a war. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think Jimmy Stewart sort of succeeds his best uh, especially in, in a movie like this, when he gets to his point of exasperation, because yeah. he's your he's sort of like your 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 good natured uncle or, or next door neighbor who's always happy, always pleasant, always has you know when you're having a bad day knows how to pick you back up, and th- and that's sort of what his whole shtick is, as as you were just sort of talking about there, but. You look at a movie like this uh, or a movie like Vertigo when he's pushed to his limits and that veneer breaks away and he can't contain it anymore and he's just in a rage and and it's it's just one of those times where like you're around someone if, if it's someone you work with or whatever or someone you went to school with or you're friends with and you see them and they're happy all the time and then that one time that you see them get mad and you're like whoa okay this this person I've never seen them like this they they really mean business and I think that's where Jimmy Stewart sort of has his best moment is when he's at that breaking point. And there's I, yeah. a re- a really great scene in this the the sort of the the burden of proof scene that he's asked when uh, he gets called into the newspaper owner's office and all the local politicians and police officers are there all the higher ups there and they have this very terse discussion and after they leave he sort of like unloads on his boss and his. Uh, the newspaper's lawyer and, and that's just sort of the crux of, of everything of what we want this movie to be we want him to actually care and give a damn and, and that's what we get from him and it sort of really changed the tone of the movie at that point i 100 percent agree um and i think that works so well because y- you're right he's like this calm guy he's always this calm guy and cool guy and when he gets mad it tells the general viewer like if this guy's mad i should probably be upset about this too and it works so well in movies like broken arrow and in this movie where it talks about miscarriages of justice or in broken arrow crimes against indigenous people because it kind of gets the average viewer who would have been like yeah i I align with his politics and if he's upset about this maybe i should also be upset um and i think that's why it works so well and he he's he does so well in, in these kind of characters um at at getting kind of communicating to uh 
the average American why certain injustices are wrong and why they need their support. And it's kind of like he, he works that middle ground and kind of like rallying up maybe the more right wing people, you know? <laughs> does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does. Absolutely. It does, absolutely. I, uh, there, if we want to talk about maybe someone that's playing a bit against type, uh, because as Rachel was saying, everyone at, of this era sort of really played to their strengths. You have someone, Lee J. Cobb, who plays the editor of the newspaper, James Stewart's boss, and I don't think I've seen him in such a, a calm role, and to the point where there were a couple instances in the movie where I feel like we Hathaway, Henry Hathaway, the director, is is purposely making us question what Lee J. Cobb's motives are. You think to the the polygraph scene, the lie detector test, where he shows up and he goes, "Oh yeah, I was I was on my way to uh, to Muncie," and he goes, "What? But Muncie's in the opposite direction. Why are you here?" He goes, "Oh, I was taking the long way around," and and that was a real standout scene for me because I'm just like, "What does this mean?" And they never really address why we're having doubts about this editor's position on this whole topic and i think casting lee j cobb is very interesting because he normally plays this very like blustering fool where he's going to yell at you first uh and then figure out what the problem is afterwards um and so i I was i was every time he was on scene i was always like what what's the angle here why is he doing this is he actually corrupt is is he lying to jimmy stewart does he have an involvement in the murder what's going on here uh so i'm curious did that raise any concerns for you for either of you what was your thought on lee j cobb's role in this movie i felt exactly the same way that you did i thought i kind of forgot about him um after my first watch and so watching this uh, again today i was like he he must know something he must be of some relation to um the guy the the guy's in jail but no he's not and i love how it's just it, you're totally right it's so in- he's an intriguing character and so interesting and also like the banter between him and um jimmy stewart it's just a plus top tier and i wish i wish it was more fleshed out but it's okay that is it isn't i think i have the same read as the two of you and i agree alicia i really love the banter between um, him and, and Jimmy Stewart. I, I found mm. it very, very amusing. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely thought there was going to be a reveal at the end that, I don't know, he was somehow involved or, I don't know, he was the guy's brother or something like that. Like, I don't know. I thought that there was going to be something where, um, and maybe that's just, again, like our modern viewing is expecting like a twist at the end. And um, I, I just thought he would be involved in some way, shape or form. Like, I, I really thought he was going to be a family member um, of of uh, the, oh, the checks, yeah, yeah. So that that's what I thought it was going to be. Then it turned out not yeah. to be at all. It was just an editor. Yeah, it it almost played to me like uh, I imagine both of you have seen the movie Spotlight, where mm-hmm. Michael Keaton plays the newspaper editor of the Spotlight team. And for the longest time, we're not really sure he's, you know, he's brought into this newspaper and we don't really know where his allegiances lie. And it's not until a pivotal point later in the film where he stands up for the spotlight team and goes, no, what they're doing is is right. And they need to do their work un- unimpeded. And you realize, oh, he was with them the whole time. You know, he just didn't want to stand up until he knew the exact time that he needed to put his foot down. And I, I sort of feel that this was a similar character archetype they were going for where we're not too sure what his intentions and motives are for this 
story that he's asking Jimmy Stewart to investigate until the very end. But the problem is there, there's so many seeds of doubt that we're not really sure what it all amounts to. I, I, I don't really know how to, to, to better word what I had already said as far as there's, there's this weird level of distrust that we have of this character, but in the end there wasn't a big reveal about why there was any sort of distrust to begin with. Absolutely. You nailed it. And he's also kind of like the quintessential editor too, where he's kind of knows um, what's good for you before you know it and kind of like yeah. walks um, Jimmy Stewart's character through that in sagely way. One thing I find interesting, Dakota, is like, you know, at the very, very beginning when you introduced the movie, you kind of talked about all these different films that came after this one um, that like it felt like like an amalgamation of a bunch of different movies that you had seen before you saw yeah. this one um and i always find it interesting like, did you find it interesting then watching this one as possibly um and, and most likely probably um kind of like the the ground zero like the the film that might have started a lot of different tropes like a lot of different um story not not storylines because like we we follow different things but like um like it was kind of like the beginning of something that a bunch of other movies eventually would be influenced by. Oh, absolutely. Like I'm a huge, all the president's men fan and it wouldn't shock me in the, in the slightest. If I learned that Alan J. Pakula was a big fan of this movie and, and sort of use it as a bit of a template because you, you have some very similar dynamic, uh, between the, the Woodward and Bernstein characters of Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford with the Jimmy Stewart and Lee J. Cobb character. Yeah, definitely. And I, I want to shout out, we were talking about Bill Antonio um, earlier, but uh, he did a another Criterion shelf called, uh, for one of the collections that was called Read All About It, and it was all about um, films that uh, involve journalism in some way, shape, or form. So I can send that to you, Dakota, because it was, uh, I think that's a good collection too. And relevant. Excellent. Yeah, I, I, love, I love investigative journalism movies because it, the ones where they actually show them doing the work. So I, yeah. I, I talk about all the president's man spotlight being two real highlights. I would talk about something like the post as one that isn't as successful where it's more interested in the drama of the characters than it is on the story itself. Yeah, I'd agree. The post, I mean, well, we don't have to get into the post, but the post had, I think a lot of other things going for it that it wasn't necessarily about journalism. It was, um, it was about something a bit, arguably greater than than journalism but anyways yep. that's not yep. neither here nor there dakota d- does this mean that you like how to lose a guy in 10 days because that is top tier journalism in that movie <laughs> i have not journalism. seen that movie since <gasps> i was a teenager um so i i it was before i would consider myself a real movie fan and i don't think i was fully paying attention to it so i i feel like i would probably need to rewatch that to have yeah. an opinion on it I would it's it's hard-hitting investigative journalism. It is, and I, I would argue <laughs> that most rom-coms around that time had a form of hard-hitting journalism by way of the female character, who was so always Dakota. always a columnist, like always a fashion columnist. So, yeah, yeah how does ten- they, they should have put that on the Criterion thing. Right? Include Absolutely. that in the journalism one. <laughs> I don't even like rom-coms, and I will say Hello's Kind Dead Days. Pretty good movie. Not bad. A-plus movie. It's my favorite. It's a it good is one. my favorite. Yep. Yep. It is a good rom-com. I remember uh, I thought that Kate Hudson was quite funny in that movie. Her and Matthew uh, McConaughey, yeah, they're right? excellent together. 
they're they're a great so, pair together. They're excellent, and she has that very classic look with the yellow dress. But, anyways, again, I don't move <laughs> on to something else. Yes. Here with recorded is the story of a silent savage menace. How for three days a great American city found itself outside the United States of America. The events, incidents, and emotions of the people who were a part of it, who found time running out as they looked into the face of mortal peril. I knew you guys were crazy. Wait a minute, Neff, wait a minute. Wait, for what? Somebody else to die? Uh, let's move on to our last movie in this series, and that is Panic in the Street, which was directed by Elia Kazan, which is a name I'm sure a lot of people know because he did such classics like On the Waterfront, East of Eden, Streetcar Named Desire, and, and others as well. Uh, and this is a movie that stars Richard Widmark, Widmar- Jack Palant, Zero Mostel, Paul Douglas, Barbara Belgettis, like this has a really stacked cast, as all Elia Kazan movies do. Uh, the logline of it is a doctor and a policeman in New Orleans have only 48 hours to locate a killer infected with a pneumonic plague. Uh, once again, Alicia, I want to turn this over to you to sort of to sort of set this up, uh, but I am very excited to talk about this movie. I love how naturalistic the acting is from, like, everybody delivers such an A-plus performance in this movie. Even um, the little kid, like, the the father-son relationship and his, it's just, it's such an adorable relationship. And, oh, gosh, the performance is so good. Amazing. And um, Woodmark, he is the face. I think, Rachel, we were talking about this before. Mm -hmm. He's got such a unique face and a way about him that is fluid, but also like so easy and breezy. And just, I love that he's like blonde. I feel like there aren't very many old Hollywood blonde stars. E, not men. Cool. Yeah. Not, not, men. Ma- not, not yeah. many blonde, blonde men. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and then sort of the more description of the plot is, uh, there is a card game that happens with, between some, some gangsters and one of them tries to leave the game and as he's running away, gets killed by the other mobsters. And it turns out that he has a viral infection that is quickly spreading. And so when the autopsy happens and the health inspector notices it, he has to figure out who the other patient zeros are that came in contact with him so that way they could stop the spread. And boy, does this movie feel extra relevant today, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I really love this movie because I think that they did such a cool thing of taking a murder, like a gang murder mystery type thing, and um, kind of turned it on its head and said, like, there's a bigger reason why now we need to find uh, this person um, or people. And they actually can't let everyone know either. Why? Because, again, like you said, Dakota, of things being very relevant, they don't want to have any everything like alarmists and like an alarmism. Is, is talked about in, in the film. Um, and yeah, and like they don't want it to go, they don't want there to be a panic in the streets, if you will. Um, but they still need to find who the murderer is. And I think it's just such an interesting way into the we need to find the murderer kind of story. Um, so I, I really enjoyed this movie. And I, I thought it was probably my favorite of the three. Sorry, Alicia, I know it's not the Jimmy story. <laughs> um, but okay. It was my favorite of three. I just, I just thought it was such a, unique way of going about the story like of of such a well-worn story mm-hmm. um it was just such a unique way of 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 digging into that 
I, I, I agree. I think, yeah, totally. I, I, my only issue with this movie is, um, it's representation of minorities. I, <laughs> I, I just feel like only like the persons of color, they are the only people to die from the disease yeah. and, and um, women. Yeah. and women. Yeah. And it kind of bummed me out, but, um, yeah, I guess, I mean, from, yeah. <laughs> I think if you watch old Hollywood movies from this, you kind of have to, take not even old hollywood movies just hollywood movies up till probably 10 years <laughs> yeah. ago um you need to take a bit of a, a different view on it but i did find it amusing when like these random chinese people just showed up and i was like what the hell are they saying i don't even think they're speaking in mandarin i'm, I'm borderline thinking they're not even speaking a dialect but they might be like a, a very different dialect that i'm my ear is trained to understand um but yeah that that is one thing that is kind of fun. And like, and they t- kind of take aim at Armenians and Greeks and yeah, like something like shish kebab is something they're like, mm-hmm. what's, what's that? And they're like, actually it's quite tasty. I was like, they are. So yeah, it, that is kind of funny. It's like, I personally, I don't mind those kind of things in movies because I think it just, it just is, it just shows the, the film for the time that it was made. And that's just how things were back then. And, and there's no use in, kind of covering it up or ignoring like that that is just fact how how minorities were treated back then yeah i really like that they had what when mark's character speak uh yeah. mandarin or whatever yeah. or, which what, whatever the language mandarin. was i will say that <laughs> i don't know mandarin very well but it was 100 percent not mandarin but they did oh, get him to speak something i thought that was yeah to show like he somehow understood this like the guy spoke and he was oh this is what he's saying it's like oh he's he's like a really um he's a he is a man of the world as a public health inspector. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think, I think obviously what you're saying, Alicia and Rachel is absolutely correct. I think considering the time of this movie, this is almost like the best case scenario of showing, Hey, this guy, the main guy is a good guy. He cares about people, their safety, the health and well being, regardless of who it is. And unfortunately, it's made in an era where there's a lot of casual racism. There's uh, one of the cooks, his lack of English, uh, speaking English ability is played for laughter and stuff like that. So that's really unfortunate that that we get those sort of things. And other than that, in these three movies, the only other people of color are like shoeshines. Yeah, yeah. Where that's it. And and so it's sort of interesting where you know the richard widmark character is really the one moral character in this entire movie and unfortunately he lives in this real world that is also made by real people who don't care about casual racism uh so it's it's this weird dichotomy of you see the positives from his character in a hopeful and better society but at the same time the society that they're critiquing is still the real life. Um, I, I, I don't really know how to better word how I'm feeling. It, it, am I making sense there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Definitely. I also want to say, I think the shoe shine thing was from fallen angel. It was. Yeah. I, I just meant in general, you... other than panic in the streets, oh, the only speaking, other person yeah. of color was, uh, was a kid yeah. who was a shoe shine. <laughs> he didn't finish the job either, but he did. Get <laughs> um, but um, yeah, one thing I, I, 
that is interesting, especially in, in our context of today and what's been going on the last few years is, you know, Richard Widmark's character, you're right. Like he, he is just caring for everyone, but at the same time, it's because of his job and because of what he knows about this disease or this virus is it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like the, the point is, is that it really doesn't matter what you look like, what language you speak, who you are. Fact is, is they need to get to the bottom of this because this is going to affect every single person if they don't nip it in the bud straight away. And that means, you know, who cares if these people are Chinese? Like, I mean, he very conveniently speaks Chinese, apparently some form of Chinese. Um, and yeah. And so like, he just, he, they don't care. Like that's kind of like a look like this. That's not really the point. And um, yeah. And I, I found that interesting too, just again, in the context of today and, uh, this idea of collectively we had to, well, we were meant to be just caring for one another, even if you didn't know each other, because it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. A virus doesn't, a virus doesn't pick and choose, you know, who it's mm-hmm. going to go. A virus isn't racist, it isn't sexist, it just... And I, and I think they do a good a job of pointing that out in one scene of the movie where one of the characters is like, oh, it's just one community. And he's like, do you not understand yeah. what a community is? This whole country is a community. Oh, so funny, isn't it, how we haven't grown at all from that. <laughs> right, yeah. Which is why I feel this movie is so damn timely as well. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. And I feel like it was also weirdly prescient in its understanding of who always will be the hardest hit in any kind of an outbreak. Yep. Like the lower income, the people of color communities, within the broader community, they're always going to be the first targeted. Like you have kind of a person from a boat coming and then, all the people like and also like to what Rachel said like a virus doesn't care about your moral register either like uh Widmark's character tries to save the bad guys the killers themselves he's like you're sick let me help you yeah. and he doesn't and obviously they think you know there's something else going on um but yeah it, it for all its faults it's also valuable and I feel like more people should definitely watch this movie did you guys find though that I mean spoiler alert that the ending was kind of a bit too neat. It was kind of like, okay, these these two men have been taken care of. Oh, We're good now. Oh, 100%. It was kind of like, but but like, but what about everybody else that they got in contact yeah. with? Like, right? it's not done now, is it? Like, I, I, th- I thought that was kind of funny. Just like thinking, again, of what's been going on um, today. It's it's just like, you. It's it doesn't just end with one person being like, oh, okay, we, we got that. We got them. We got them. It's like, it keeps going. But then they also were very just like, just get the vaccine. I mean, they were like forcing people to get it. They were literally rolling people's sleeves up and being like, okay, we're going to jab you right here in the middle of this office. Um, when Mark, yeah. yeah, his character literally goes off to make another baby right at the end. He's like, <laughs> remember with the wife? And I think they needed that to sh- to like keep people. I feel like this movie would have scared quite a few people. And I feel like they needed that kind of happy ending to kind of quell those fears and just, you know, remind Because I feel like when Contagion came out and like, before pandemic times, it really did freak me out. I was like, no way am I ever going to eat anything at an airport ever again. (laughs) Gwyneth Paltrow will be out there. She will kill me. (laughs) So I was just, it freaked me out. And I needed that, you know, happy ending. So maybe that's what Kazan was going. It it definitely sort of feels like Kazan had a movie in his mind and the studio was like, great, we can let you make it, but you got to add in this subplot as well. You got to add in the relationship story as well. It was very <laughs> random, wasn't it? Where she's like, I've decided we're going to have another baby. And he's like, oh, have you? <laughs> like, what was the... Like, guys, we're fighting a plague right now. And she's like, I 
think our like you said it yourself like our son can't be an only child like it's like what this is not important at the moment you guys how about you come knock me up yeah <laughs> i actually thought in the moment i thought she meant she was pregnant i thought so too being, like surprise yeah like i'm pregnant yeah and then i it wasn't until the very last scene that i'm like oh she's not pregnant. <laughs> yeah. so, maybe, maybe it was but they're maybe gonna be yeah, maybe Kazan was just like, okay, fine. Like, maybe you're right to go to, and they were like, Kazan, you got to change this. And he's like, fine. And he just didn't give a shit. So he just threw in some random scenes to be like, you good? That had to happen a lot with Noirs too, right? Just because yeah. they were talking about so many persona non gratis people um, yeah. and people of color. They had to throw in something good for the white folks and say, <laughs> you're safe. Don't, Don't worry. worry. Don't worry, you guys. I felt very you're safe watching this movie. class. <laughs> Uh, there's a couple things in this movie that I really appreciate and and I think was the reason why I loved it so much and much of the reason why I enjoyed Call Northside 777 was its dedication to the idea of journalism and I think this movie did such a good job of trying to take pride in its accuracy to uh, pandemic response And, and so you get this whole like long spiels about uh what the disease actually is how it's communicable uh what they need to do to prevent the spread of it how they express the terms in both scientific and layman's terms but then we also get scenes like at the very beginning the the autopsy is just done so casually and i respected that (laughs) where it was just people who are doing their job they're going to have conversations Mm. but they're also going to be able to focus on the work and communicate what they need to to make sure that the scene moves forward it was like it's like those um i love i really did like the beginning because it it is like the beginning of a lot of like the disaster movies where everything is just running according to plan. Everything is normal. And then everything also just falls apart at the drop of a hat. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is like a very, very, now that you guys have convinced me, it is a very prescient um, <laughs> disaster movie. Works better as a disaster than a noir. I yes. Think, so. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I did enjoy, there was like talks of quarantine and um, there's one after the, uh, the bar owner's wife passes away and then one guy comes out and he's got like a mask on. A mask, yes. When I saw that, I went, is he wearing a mask? It's like, oh, well, damn. Like, <laughs> which, of course, they would be. Like, of course, this is not a new thing. Like, masks are not new. Um, but yeah, those things, it, it, again, it's just funny seeing a movie made in, what was this one? 1950. And, you know, obviously the world at that point had gone through a plague and, and a pandemic and, and whatnot, but yeah, who knew that, you know, what, 70 odd years later, there would be something else. And a movie from the 19, like literally from 1950 would be, as we've been saying, incredibly relevant to today. Even more relevant, I would say, than Contagion. Because <laughs> this one feels a bit more, not what happened, but like just a, a bit more real in that mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Well, And uh, on that note, while you guys were watching it did you feel like did you were you wishing for everyone to just put on a mask and sanitize their hands because i was i was like please for the love of god get a hand sanitizer because that doctor when it did sanitize his hands and i was wondering what he was using i guess maybe just alcohol like i guess you could just throw alcohol on your hands and it would be like more or less the same thing but i thought that was really funny when the doctor like he's like bro i'm like what's he doing and I was like, oh damn he's got hand sanitizer yeah. good for him <laughs> I was like, I wonder if it smells like lavender, like mine. 
<laughs> and I think the other real key thing that, that worked for me in this movie is that it did not stop at all. It was just constantly go, 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 go. Yeah. Uh, there's never a dull moment, uh, except for there, there's two dull moments, and both of them is when he's back at home with his wife, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but literally every other scene, it ha- everything is happening so fast. You, you can like feel the clock ticking in the background that you like, cause it's almost like Kazan's in the background behind the camera being like, TikTok guys, you got to speed this scene up. It's not going fast enough. We have more urgency here. Come on, let's layer this thing up. There's one point in the movie where they just say like, this is just day two or like it just happened yesterday or like it's only been two days or something like that. And like that, that clicked it in for me where I was like, Oh, like they're moving really quickly. Like they're trying to say like, they've discovered this thing and they need to move really, really fast. And you're right. Like it, it does feel like that in terms of pacing as well. But as much as we're kind of shitting on those scenes at, at home, I think that they are kind of necessary and just of yeah. taking a breather and, and not making all of it just go, go, go. Like you do have a moment of just like, okay, collect yourself and, and understand what's happening in the movie. In in the pacing, I feel like it is kind of similar to Fallen Angels, where everything just mm-hmm. goes so fast and puts you makes you uneasy, which I feel like those two movies have a really good understanding of how to make the viewers feel queasy by how just like busyingly they spin. And totally, yeah, they, they need the home scenes just in the way that um, horror movies need bits of jokes to kind of like puncture the, the tenseness. Mm-hmm. So like the tension. They needed the adorable yeah. kid. Well, this movie was also really funny at the beginning, too. I, I texted Rachel, and I was like, this is like if Contagion was a screwball comedy. Yeah. Like the... It's good. Like, <laughs> could you imagine? The dynamic yeah. between uh, Richard Widmark and Paul Douglas as the uh, health surgeon and the uh, the police officer, the two of them had a great chemistry together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, everybody I, did I a really good job. I really enjoyed this movie. I think the performances are, are all like, I personally, I didn't fall an angel. Some of the performances in it made me a bit like, okay, like, I know the acting is different era to era, but that one made me a bit like eye rolly at times because they get a yeah. bit much. Like when they're like shaking each other, I'm like, <laughs> calm down. Um, but this one, though, I, I enjoyed it because, like, in the moments that do feel a bit, I don't want to say camp, but the ones that don't like it wouldn't fit into a movie today, like a modern day movie wouldn't be acted that way. It still really gelled well with the rest of the film and it didn't really stand out. Um, yeah. I, I thought it was, I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was great. I was just going to say, I feel like this one and North North side are on par in terms of performances delivered, um, mm-hmm. especially by the supporting cast and North side. Everyone did an amazing job and like very naturalistic, very, very human these characters are very human and um they had a lot of dignity to them and like they fleshed them out and didn't like parody the the minority characters and they really uh, most of them some of them were <laughs> weird in in panic in the streets but for the most part they were i respected that uh, yeah and as far as performances go i i sort of want to highlight richard winmark because after i watched these three movies I watched Kiss of Death, which he is in, and mm-hmm. he actually got nominated for an Oscar for playing this uh, gangster in that movie, and I cannot believe it's the same actor. He basically is playing a, a, a proto-version of the Joker. He is constantly laughing. He is absolutely vicious and cruel. He he literally ties a woman in her wheelchair and throws her down a flight of stairs. Uh, while laughing hysterically the whole time. Like, I cannot believe that these two 
performances were done by the same actor. He is a gem, yeah, and he's great. I'm um, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, Alicia. I was he. Uh, you totally disagree with me. I don't like Paul Bettany now, but early Paul Bettany from like the early 2000s, kind of the same vibe because Bettany oh. was in this movie called Gangster Number One, and he plays a gangster. He's like Malcolm McDowell's younger version, and there's this like sinister craziness to him, and that I feel like. Uh, he he could have done a good woodmark. Yeah, they, ha- they have a very similar look too. Very very similar. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Although woodmark looks has like a more baby face than yeah. Than but um, what I was gonna say was the you, we mentioned um, the Fox Noir collection that uh, Bill and I looked through last year, and and other people too. I, I should say there were a lot of other writers on that on that piece. Um, but one of the films that I was looking at, as we, as Dakota, you mentioned was night in the city and he's in that as well. Richard Widmark is in that as well. And he plays a hustler and like a con man in that. And so it, it's, he's again, one of those actors that I think, you know, we were saying he was not the Jimmy Stewart's, the, mm-hmm. the, the Cary Grant and Humphrey Bogart's at the time where they were just playing one specific person. They, I guess would be considered what we now call character actors. Yeah. Like just right. kind of moving along and doing doing the different things, and and unfortunately, they're the ones who aren't as well known to, um, like non film buffs. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna be Super looking for, for his movies in the future because I really have enjoyed his screen presence. Me too. I watch Kiss of Death. That sounds crazy. Me too. I'm gonna do that tonight. Really yeah, he, it, it's it's an okay movie, but he's really good in it. Uh, and then the last person I, I feel like we need to sort of shout out is Jack Palant, who most people probably know for his role uh, in the City Slickers movies as Curly. But uh, this was his film debut, and what a presence <laughs> does he have? He's he's physically imposing as this uh, gangster boss, and he's he looks very young, but he has this real raw energy to him that just sort of like every time he's on screen kind of terrifies you. Yeah, you can't look away from his face. It's he's magnetism to this guy is amazing. He has a very like Frankenstein kind of yes. thing to him. I find like he would been. I, I'm not very familiar with his work, so maybe he has none of the things. But like, I, I feel like he could have been like a very um, like we we did an, a Nosferatu episode. Very was it the most recent one? No, two 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 weeks ago. Um, and I feel like he could have done something like that, like one of those very gothic-y horror movies. Yeah. Because uh, he has that look. And he's so – he's very tall. Like he's a very tall man, especially in comparison to everybody else around him. But he, he's fantastic in it. Yeah, he's yeah. slender, but he's not gangly. So he still has a mm-hmm. bit of an yes. imposing look to him. Um, his shoulders are very broad. Yeah. Like he is like a wider dude. But yeah, very, very – Like good. I understand why everyone's scared. Him. I'm just going to put it out there. He played Count Dracula in a Bram Stoker's Dracula television movie. Oh, so. there you go, Rachel. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it, he just he looks like it. Like he really could do it. I think it's the jaw, the jaw, and the temples. Yeah. yeah. I think the last thing I want to sort of talk about, and uh, I mentioned it briefly to Rachel, is all three of these movies took place in different cities. And normally, the one thing you think of when you think of film noir is that it takes place in California. Uh, the first one, Fallen Angel, takes place in San Francisco. Call Northside 777 takes place in Chicago. And Panic in the Streets takes place in New Orleans. And 
the use of the city has always been sort of an integral aspect of noir. You know, California is this mysterious land that was, you know, settled later than the rest of the states. And so it sort of was able to build its own mythos. And that's why it makes such a good city setting for noir. And the fact that they were able to use uh, three different states and still sort of convey that the locale influences the movie itself, I think did a really good job, especially since you you look at both Call Northside and Panic in the Streets used actual locations, which at the time was a bit of a rarity uh, to, to film movies on location. Yeah. Absolutely. I love the Chicago in particular. Like you said, like they really show the city off. And if you're going to do a journalism movie, like it's, especially for that time, like it had to be in Chicago and it had to, you know, you you had to really go to the city because it is so unique. Like, and I I love the shots of Chicago. Actually, it's it's, um, good that you mentioned that. I really like the shots of Chicago, especially I think at the very beginning of the movie, they have some really, really pretty like aerial shots of, um, of the you know the, the river and all the different bridges that go through and stuff like that and i feel like for a noir to be a noir it kind of spoke to, we kind of spoke to this earlier but it, it always in some way has to show like the gritty underbelly of something and, and that something will always be um society and society will always need to be embedded within a city which is why i think cities play such an integral role in these stories because more than any other type of story these films noir they have like this um sociological or anthropological bent where they um kind of look into why we are the way that we are um and a lot of the times the way that we are is uh big images but on the on the underside we have like these the seediness and i don't know and i'm not i'm not making sense but um yeah i'm, I'm glad that uh the cities do play a very good role in all three of these movies. Yeah, I, I think that's why people love noirs there, Alicia. And in the seediness is is one of the aspects. I, I I wouldn't call myself an expert on the genre, but if you were to ask me my favorite movie genre, noir is probably the one I'll go to because there's always something about it that I'll like. I like the look and the feel that you get when you watch a movie in the noir genre. And in all three of these movies is showed once again why I love the genre. Even though I'm not as crazy about Fallen Angel, I still enjoyed watching it and I thought that there were some really interesting aspects to it. And that's why after I watched these three, I watched another one in the collection. And I'm probably going to watch a couple more in the collection uh, while it's still up on the Criterion channel. So I, I'm just very happy. I really love doing episodes around film noir and I hope this sort of becomes a yearly thing and that uh, you join us every year, Alicia. Yeah. Yay, I would love to. I didn't. I didn't force myself in this time. You invited me, so I will come. <laughs> but I think that uh, should wrap up our conversation. Alicia, thank you so much for coming on. You brought your expertise. I feel Rachel and I both learned a lot from you today, and I hope everyone listening did as well. Where can people find more of your work? And is there anything you want to promote right now? For sure. So I, I know everyone's jumping off of Twitter, but as a journalist, Twitter isn't—I'm still on it. Um, I'm not sure if I will be on it for long, but I'm there as A L I S H A N G L. And this month on Film Days, I'm going to have a piece on um, um, a Gene Kelly noir. So I, I work really hard on it, and I hope everybody listening reads it because 
If you don't, I will come to your home and force you to read it. Well, I'll make sure to to link to that article in the show notes if it's out. Yeah, is it out yet? Uh, no, it will be out next week. Okay, well, as soon as it's out, make sure you, you send it to me so that way I can add it to the show notes because it is very timely and relevant. Uh, but then also you and Rachel work together on the new website, the Asian cut, uh, is I, I know you have a new review up on there. Do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, for sure. That one is, um, not noir at all. It's on uh, Leonore will never die, uh, which, uh, is, everybody should watch it. Have you, have Dakota, have you seen it? I have not yet. No. Oh, you must. It is so good. It, it, it. I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of impossible to describe. It's like if um, the Truman Show and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead had a baby. <laughs> and that baby would be Leonore Will Never Die. I know um, uh, Jeff from yeah. Classic oh. Movies Live was a big fan of that one. He saw it at TIFF. It's, 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 it'll, it's a thinker. It'll, it'll stay with you forever. It's, and it rewards with every subsequent watch. It's a really one of the year's best. Awesome. Well, Rachel, what about you? Where can people find you? And do you have anything you want to promote? Um, yes, but before I do that, I just want to say Alicia and Veronica Phillips over at Film Days, they have started a cinema club um, via their, I believe it's a Substack, right, Alicia? Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. Substack. Um, and we do, yeah, this month, um, each of us, we put in four movie recommendations and the majority of my recommendations, I think all of my recommendations, the theme for myself I picked was Deadly Women. Um, and Memento was one of the movies I rec- recommended. Uh, Killers, a Black um, Black Widow, I think. Is that, it's called Black Widow, isn't it? It is, yeah. Yeah, it's from 1987, that one. Um, and a couple of others that I cannot remember at the moment. Body that's a fun, we're having. Body heat. Did I do that body heat? Yeah. I have it up in front of me right now. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, definitely go and check out that list and watch along because, um, yeah, uh, over on Film Days, we're watching the movies and logging them on, on uh, Letterboxd. Uh, yeah, and you can go to – it's filmdays.net. Um, and yes, And you can sign up to their Substack through their website. Um, as for me, I'm always on rachelcage.com and um, Twitter underscore Rachel KH. I think this week, what did I have out? Um, a interview with Randall Park, which was really, really fun to do. I was um, I was very happy after I did that interview. Uh, so yeah, so that that's with, um, with Exclaim. And that's for his new show, Blockbuster, which is on Netflix, which is an okay show. It's fun. <laughs> I, I like, Rachel, how uh, I am your publicist and you are Alicia's publicist. <laughs> we're the worst at talking about ourselves. That's what all writers, they're always, we're always the worst. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, oh, but do check out the AsianCut.com if you haven't yes, already please. done so. Uh, we've, the two of us plus Rose, who's going to be on uh, ContraZoom, I think next week or very, very soon. Um we've worked really hard to kind of get this website up and we're just slowly but surely filling it with different content. And um, yeah, so please go check it out. And if you have any feedback, let us know. It is a permanent fixture in the show notes now for people to, uh, to check out, <laughs> but uh, you can follow this show on Instagram 
for now Twitter uh, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. If you have seen any of the Fox Noir collection, let us know your thoughts. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. And if you really like listening to the show, consider tipping us on coffee. Thanks for checking us out.